much. Um, <coughs> you'll have to excuse me, my, I have a bit of a sore throat today, so I'm going to, the, the advantage of that is that I'm going to keep this succinct and leave lots of time for discussion and we can expand on, on some of the issues. Um, what I'm going to um, talk about today um, primarily is causation. I'm not going to go into so much the nitty-gritty on the ground issues that are, that are behind differentials in, in attainment, but rather look at how we go about approaching these issues, what the assumptions might be that, that underlie approaches to, to, the, to these issues, um, and their methodological implications and their communication and intervention implications as well. Causation is quite a, a recent interest of mine. It actually came from becoming involved in this um, national project that Hefke commissioned on the causes of, of students' differential outcomes. And it, it suddenly struck me that actually social scientists have been quite slow to address causation, where actually, particularly those of us that are primarily qualitative researchers with interpretivist approaches, are really quite reluctant to say X causes Y. Um, and this struck me as a bit neglectful. And so I've gone back to, to look at who has actually looked at causation and, and what the implications of it might be for this project. So really, I, this is an overview of, of what my current thinking is about causation and, and how it in influences um, that particular project. It's come to influence the way that I have thought about other work as well. Um, and I'll look at um, the stance I'm taking on causation theory in relation to curriculum and familial context. won't go into those issues in huge depth, but just a kind of indication of, of what it might look like if we were to, to, to take that, that approach further. And then finally, I'll say a little bit about um, the, the Hefty project, which is ongoing due to, to reporting um, late May, and I guess it will be made public later on this year. Okay, so causation in uh, kind of everyday discourses in higher education um, tends to be viewed, I think, that particularly in relation to um, what has come to be called a gap in attainment or differential attainment among students from, from different ethnic groups. The whole question is, is viewed through fears and uh, um, particularly of um, kind of press coverage uh, and of uh, potential freedom of information requests when um, the statistics are, are made public. That's a kind of senior management level, but lower down in, you know, in, in higher education system generally. And we express uh, where we think causes lie through the very language that, that we choose. Um, so some people talk about gaps in achievement, others talk about gaps in attainment. Some people might talk about underperformance, and others might talk about gaps in degree classification. And it's pretty obvious you know, what, where you are placing the location of, of course. So gaps in degree classification is saying, well, it's the assessment that's wrong. And what it is is the assessors aren't recognizing that the or aren't assessing in ways or setting assessments that, um, that recognise um, attainment fairly. 
um, conversely, underperformance is, is very much kind of locating it within the student. And then among activists, uh, and you may or may not include yourself among activists, there's a, 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 a very often, I think, a reference to a deficit model, which is um, sort of a disparaging way of referring to any explanation that refers to student attributes that might be talking about prior attainment or um, familial context or anything that students bring with them. And it can be also characterised as blaming the student. And conversely, when we talk about institutional attributes, we can sometimes label that as um, institutional racism. And I would argue that none of those terms are particularly helpful. I mean, the deficit model is, is borrowed from disability studies, where you might be re referring to, um, say, a wheelchair user who is not enabled to reach a first floor seminar room because of the, the absence um, of, of a lift. And that, I think, is, is a very different um, kind of deficit from the kind of um, deficits or the kind of disabilities, deficits, I'm not quite sure of the language now, but you know, it's a very different thing to um, what we're talking about with socially constructed um, uh, levels of attainment that are, that are to do with agency and structure in far more complex ways. Um, and then if we look at uh, causation, in research on attainment, there too I think the terms are very much politicised and, and polarised. One of the, a more very recent US study conducted at Harvard talked, which theoretically informed, you know, explored causation um, in some depth, but also look, looks at individualised explanations um, in a kind of disparaging way and structural um, uh, factors. Um, as being far, far more fruitful and far more obvious places to, 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 to look for um, solutions. And, and, and this is a study that I think is, was um, really quite valuable in lots of ways and draws attention to what we call microaggressions within campus environments and the emotional, psychological impact of those over the longer term. But these issues about structure and agency have a much, much longer history, of course. You know, they go beyond studies on, on attainment and, and differential attainment. Um, I think a very pithily summarised um, way of expressing it was Diego Gambetta's title of his book, Were They Pushed or Did They Jump?, where he looks at the attainment of um, um, young people um, and uh, school um, uh, school um, students in Italy, and he um, analyzes um, the tensions between intentional choice causes that are beyond individual awareness and structural constraints on on behaviour. I think the reality is that debates about structure and agency are political. There's no getting away from that. And they have profound implications for the interventions that we then um, choose to adopt or believe to be worthwhile. But what if causation 
wasn't completely located in the student and neither was it completely located in the institution. What if we think about it as an interplay between what a student brings and what an institution provides? And that there is no fixed point on that, on that continuum, but rather that that is actually an empirical question to be investigated again and again through a dialogic process of investigation. So what I'm suggesting is that if we were to look at, say, curriculum, we might then find a point on the <coughs> a particular curriculum. We would find a point on that on, on that continuum between what the student brings and what the institution provides that allows us to understand the mechanisms that bring about differentials in attainment. Similarly, if we were to look at familial context or staff diversity or prior attainment for that matter, all of those factors have both agentic, uh, agentic components and structural components. And finding, understanding the interplay between them is what gives us an understanding of a causal mechanism. So what would constitute evidence to give us an understanding of that interplay? We've always looked at correlation through quantitative um, studies and, and very valuable and um, hugely influential they have been too. And we, we find those correlations through experimental research designs and through large-scale quantitative analysis. But in the social science methodology books that I was introduced to in my training, there was always a caution. Correlation is not the same as causation. <coughs> and nobody ever went on to discuss it any further than that. You, you know, and this is an observation of Stephen Gorard's actually. I, it was something I read and thought, yes, that's right. That's exactly what, what, what I experienced. Um, but we do need to go further than that and look at what it is that correlation contributes to our understanding of, of causation. And um, Clark et al. Um, recommend, and they are speaking, in fact, in relation to um, um, the guidance for um, medical practice and uh, NICE's, um, sorry, the in, um, <coughs> Institute for Clinical um, Excellence, Excellence. <laughs> their guidance for um, judging what constitutes evidence that would then um, be their, their advice for, for clinical practice. And he suggests that there's been too much of an elevation of the randomly controlled trial and that what often happens in practice and needs to happen more, more explicitly is that we need to understand the mechanism that underlies the correlations that, that those large studies um, point to. But Clark et al. say mechanisms are valuable, but beware of the psychologically compelling account. And I thought, yes, we've got lots of those in higher education. We've got the student voice. And there is no shortage of psychologically compelling accounts among the student voice literature and in the, the many um, studies, particularly in differential attainment, that privilege the student voice. and. Um, hold it up as, and hold those accounts as evidence of mechanisms that show us um, how um, uh, underachievement or um, uh, lower levels of, of attainment might, might, might be coming about. 
Um, so the question is, how, how do we overcome that barrier? What is it that we need to do um, to find evidence of mechanisms rather than just those psychologically compelling accounts? And what do we do with correlation beyond the statistics? And uh, I think Stephen Gorard, within the education literature, goes furthest, in my view, in tackling this, when he proposes that um, a relatively stable association, um, so a measurable effect from an intervention, and at least a tentative theoretical explanation, something that kind of makes sense, um, and that may even operate at a distance, or even come after the effect, would constitute evidence. Um, and he means by may come after the effect. He's referring to the idea that if you, for example, um, see that uh, in your curriculum that there are no um, black authors uh, um, that are um, considered part of the canon, then, you, then, then that may influence the way you think about your own future and um, whether you would be somebody who, who would contribute <coughs> to um, a, a, a canon and a, and a future curriculum or even to, um, to teaching within, within your academic discipline. I think Clark et al, are, are, although it's, um, they're talking with, with respect to medicine, are much clearer for me, much more explicit. And they argue for an integration between evidence of correlation with evidence of mechanism where the accounts of mechanisms are graded, where they're not just stories of, 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 of particular individuals, but rather are corroborated and are subjected to all the kinds of critical analysis that you would expect in any good, rigorous, qualitative research. <coughs> and that there is an interplay between the um, correlation and the, and, and the investigation of mechanism, that there's a back and forth and that's what I want to demonstrate now I'm in looking at curriculum and um, in your context. <clears throat> so I think we can see from the volume, growing volume of student union activists and NUS campaigns that revolve around curriculum. So this is the University of the Arts London poster um, um, that, that was associated with, with an event and, and with um, their efforts to, to conduct audits of, of reading lists or to initiate that in, in, in some way. Um, and many of you might have seen, more well known, is um, a group of students centred around UCL, but including other London universities, um, made a video which is on YouTube called Why Is My Curriculum White? Highly recommend that, actually. Putting, um, I think a, a viewing of it in, in this event might, might have been um, an interesting addition as well. Um, so there is definitely, I think, a correlation between what students are exercised about when they learn particularly of um, the disparities in, in, in attainment and, and what they are pointing to. Um, harder, I think, to get statistical evidence that, that relates to, to curriculum. But certainly th there are these accounts. But, and, and, I, and when you listen, particularly to the UCL video, you get lots of fragments of um, 
theory as to as to why curriculum might be uh, an important factor and personal experience. So there's, there's quite a, a kind of a range of um, kind of fragments of evidence that that, that are in that kind of grey literature. Um, but in talking to students, talk, sorry, talking to tutors, I think, you get another perspective on the mechanisms that might be operating within curricula. And this is a, a quote from a, a tutor that I interviewed, and it became the subtitle to, to the report that came later. Some students just don't sign up to the intellectual project that is the course. And in that one quote, the, the tutor um, points to the possibility, which is by no means universally accepted, that curricula are not a neutral take on what it means to be a historian or an English literature scholar or um, a social scientist, um, that, that they are highly culturally and historically situated takes on what it means to be those things and very often heavily informed by the course team's own background um, and their own trajectory within an academic discipline. But he also says that some students just don't sign up to that. They just don't sign, they don't, they don't, they choose not to adopt the take that the, that the course is, is, is promoting. Um, I would argue that some students don't even perceive that that, that that is that the course is an intellectual project. Some do, and when they do, they have a choice. They can either sell out if they feel that, that, that their identity is at odds with what the course is offering, or they can be quite instrumental and say, well, I'll put that aside and, and see what can be done. And in the longitudinal project that, that this quote comes from, so that there are students in all three of those categories. It's hard to quantify, but certainly in terms of variation, all of that goes on, all of those kinds of interactions go on. Um, Thank you. As well as thinking about the kind of diachronic aspects of curriculum, the, the kind of substantive syllabus curriculum. We also need to think about kind of day-to-day -day interactions in, in through which the curriculum is mediated. To save my voice, I'm going to let you just read those quotes. Can you see them at the back? So, 
um, on the face of it, the tutor's taking quite an egalitarian stance. Wherever the student is at is where the feedback discussion will go. So on the face of it, this is a level playing field. But some students are taken further than others within that. And the student is perceiving a differential treatment between himself and, and the other students. Um, and the idea that you just allow students to, to set their own agenda, I think is, um, you know, there are lots of projects, whole projects that are, that are, that are labelled self-directed. And educationally admirable though that is, the process whereby you decide on your um, research question or, or, or your project is itself loaded um, with, with many different <coughs> hurdles, um, particularly if you are required to bring something of yourself into the, the project and you don't share um, a cultural a set of cultural reference points with, with, the, with the main tutor who's supporting you. Um, and this kind of levels of security that are needed are, are kind of drawn, uh, draws attention to here. There wasn't enough dialogue, I couldn't have a discussion about what I was really interested in. Okay, um, so that was all I wanted to say on, on curriculum. I'm going to move on to familial context in a slightly oblique way. So just recently, um, just at the end of, of last year, a really interesting report by Ruth Woodfield was released by the HEA, which looked at differ differential attainment and um, retention across the disciplines. But earlier on, we had um, some figures from Hefke, and I think you can kind of get, get these annually from, from HESA, about who who goes into which disciplines in, in, in higher education. And you know there are different different ways that you can cut the data as, as statisticians here can, can can tell you more fully. Um, and the way that this Hefke report looked at the data was in terms of what proportion of all say white students who go into higher education go into the different disciplines. So among all black students, and I'm sorry that we've kind of that, that, that this report lumps together Afro-Caribbean and Black African students who I think have very different trajectories, but that, that's what the, the report does here. Or Pakistani and Bangladeshi students. So the, the red figures there um, signify the most popular, the most popular um, discipline within that ethnic group. And what I think we can kind of deduce from that is that there are some um, disciplines that have a long-standing history in some um, ethnic groups and some that are less popular. So if we looked at the creative arts, for example, um, ah, okay, so the... Um, the percentages from the creative arts aren't on that table. They're on my table and in my hand, but not up there. I'm not quite sure why. Let's leave that. In, in the table I've got here, I've got percentages below all of those. So I'm just going to kind of read them out if that's okay. 
Um, so within the creative arts, you've got about 12% of, of white students going to the creative arts, um, a similar proportion of, of black students, but 3% of Pakistani and Bangladeshi students. So let's just kind of think about that a bit. If, if you were a Pakistani student deciding to do a creative art, then you are quite likely going against the grain. Those around you maybe are not that supportive of, of, of your choice, or are, but don't know very much about it. Conversely, um, if you're a white student, quite likely your parents went to art school, and maybe even your grandparents did as well. Um, that, that, that possibility is not universal, but far more likely. Similarly, in the humanities, you know, we can have kind of um, we can hypothesise about kind of relevance of curricula here as well. So, looking at the humanities, about 20% of white students go into the humanities, 12% um, of black students, 6% of Chinese students, 11% of Pakistani Bangladeshi. 8% of Indian Asian and 18% interestingly of mixed and other ethnicities. So in, in looking at um, who goes into the disciplines, we can begin to get an understanding of what familial context might look like. It's just a starting point I think for more qualitative work that would explore what kinds of support and lack of support students have as they go through higher education. Um, by contrast, Ruth Woodfield looks at the makeup of disciplines by ethnicity. So looking at, say, the humanities, how many students within the humanities are white, how many are, are black, etc. So you get there, um, so who have higher education institutions got in front of them? Whereas the way I'm cutting it is what kind of environment have they come from? So the implication, the questions that arise from that is how are the different disciplines historically and socially situated <coughs> in the different ethnic groups? And how do the disciplines situate the different ethnicities. And my own research suggests that material and other cumulative advantage and disadvantage can be traced throughout the student cycle. You go from choice right through attainment and employment prospects and unemployment prospects. And so the question for institutions is what aspects of university provision from admission to curriculum to graduation make assumptions actually about, about students' familial context and their resources and their motivations. So when a student doubts their choice, what are the differential resources that they have to fall back on when they're talking through whether to drop out or not? When a student has... Um, a financial um, is expected to contribute financially towards um, the completion of an assignment or to going on a trip. That doesn't just pertain to the financial resource of their family, but also to the extent to which they are able to ask for it. What position are they in as, as they make that, that request? 
So don't feel guilty about it, but you may feel totally entitled. So, um, that concludes what I wanted to say about familial context. I want to spend the next few slides just putting the whole issue of attainment in context and saying a bit about the, the Hefke project. Um, so, attainment is, I think, the kind of hot issue in higher education policy and w, particularly WP um, kind of circles amongst practitioners. Um, but we need to see it in context. You know, five, ten years ago it was retention. Um, and uh, I think it's time, as I think the Hefke report, Higher Education and Beyond does, that, that we looked at outcomes together, that we looked at the student cycle as a whole, particularly because I think it shows us a very nuanced and differentiated trajectory of different ethnic groups. We're constantly talking about a gap in attainment between white and black and minority ethnic groups, as well as black and minority ethnic groups where one undifferentiated whole and actually there are some really important differences which I think many of you will be aware of. So the way that the, this Higher Education Beyond report sets it out is it talks about attaining a degree, whether you attain a first or second, upper second degree, um, and then attaining a degree and continuing to any employment or any further study, and finally attaining a degree and also going on to graduate employment or graduate further study. And that's the remit of the project that, that I'm involved in and that is led by Anna Mountford-Zindars. Um, the other team members are Jaron Moore and John Saunders from the ARC Network and Stephen Jones from Manchester University. And the methodology encompasses several strands. Rather than read them out, I'm going to catch my breath and let you read that list. So we're currently in the midst of the institutional case study. <coughs> what are finally the implications of what I said about causation earlier for the, for the Hefke project as I see it? I think first of all there's a question about um, looking at the way the sector views causes um, and also the way that well, the sector is represented in the discourse of stakeholders and it's represented in the literature that is produced um, by many people in this room amongst others. Um, and what do these assumptions mean for the kinds of interventions that are proposed? So for example, um, some institutions go for targeted um, interventions for, 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 particular, for particular groups and, and targeting can take many forms. It can take you know, di directly, say, looking at um, Asian students or it can be, well, we've looked at our um, Asian students and discovered that many of them commute and so we're, we're going to um, target some intervention that, that relates to relieving some of the hardship that goes with, with, with commuting, kind of in, indirect tar targeting. And then there are others that go for a kind of universal intervention um, stance, sometimes called a post-racial stance, that says, well, well, any intervention we produce is going to be open to everyone, and we hope that some students who have been previously disadvantaged will, disadvantaged, will benefit more 
than others. Um, the other uh, set of assumptions is to do with um, the different levels of student involvement. So, for example, if a, method, if a methodology starts off with, well, our, um, statistical data show, shows that there are differentials in attainment, how should we find out more about this? I know we'll do focus groups with black students because they'll be able to tell us um, what's going on. So the assumptions embedded in that are that those black students are um, conscious of what's going on, they're able to perceive it and articulate what's going on, um, and uh, um, it's visible to them and they're capable of seeing it during the time that they are actually doing their, their degrees. Okay, I think that's placing a huge amount of responsibility on those focus group participants. Um, there are other kinds of involvement, so in terms of student union involvement, even awareness, the level of student awareness about these issues varies significantly and is managed in different ways. You know, there's nervousness about the involvement of, of students. And I would add a third bullet <coughs> point to that as of this morning's reading of the London Review of Books um, in an article entitled The Betrayal of Higher Education. Um, I would add the involvement of academics. Um, you know, what, what is the involvement of academics in the interventions that are, that are formulated? and what lies behind the involvement or otherwise of, 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 of academics. Um, finally, what are the challenges of evaluation? You know, particularly when some interventions are around um, the mentoring of, of black and minority ethnic staff or um, the redesign of a, of a postgraduate diploma in, in learning and teaching so that it includes um, diversity and equality issues. How on earth do you evaluate um, the, an intervention in relation to um, the differentials in student outcomes? Okay, I'm going to stop there and let you speak, I think. Yeah, that's, references will be on the, be more visible um, on when, when the presentation is uploaded. And that's emails um, take down if you want to keep in touch. I'll stop there. Thank you, Diana. That was great.